Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Rachel Hiller is a research fellow and clinical psychologist at the University of Bath. She completed her clinical psychology training in Australia, where she worked alongside Professor Michael Gradisar, a leading expert in child and adolescent sleep and co-author of her new book. She worked for many years at the Finders University Child and Adolescent Sleep Clinic in South Australia, supporting parents and young people to overcome sleep difficulties, whilst also contributing to the clinic's ongoing research trials to test the best interventions for this group. Since moving to the UK in 2015, Rachel's work has continued to focus on the mental health and well-being of young people and specifically the role of parents in supporting well-being. Her current work particularly focuses on young people who've been exposed to traumatic or very frightening events. And welcome to this edition of Get a Grip podcast series with me, Dr. Cathy Weston. This morning, I'm interviewing a fantastic clinical psychologist called Dr. Rachel Hiller. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Cathy. And you have written a an amazing book uh, called Helping Your Child with Sleep Problems alongside a, a very eminent researcher, Michael Gradisar. And we're going to be referring to that book throughout this interview. Great. Thank you. The book itself uh, really deals with sleep problems in school-age children. So between the ages of 5 and 12, which is a very interesting area. So many sleep books in the parenting world focus on newborns and toddlers. But actually, uh, sleep problems are are very uh, common in that age group. Isn't that right, Rachel? Yeah, absolutely. So that's really the gap we wanted this book to fill because we know there's a huge amount of information out there around the sleep of infants and toddlers. Um, And there's quite a lot of information around adult insomnia as well. So uh, we really wanted to be able to provide parents with information that targeted uh, school-aged children. So as you said, the book's targeted at around the 5 to 12-year-old age range where we know sleep problems are really, really common and can really affect a family's well-being. Um, but we also know that parents can really struggle to get information on what to do about those difficulties. And I think as well, when you have a baby in the younger years, you've got your friends to talk to, you know, maybe your school aren't, your children aren't at school yet. Um, but I think in this age bracket, you can feel very alone struggling with these issues and perhaps other parents maybe aren't that sympathetic either. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right that uh, when you've got an infant, uh, you, you know, there's um, parenting groups and visits from nurses and more regular kind of contact with your paediatrician or family doctor. And that's not to take away from the fact that sleep problems in any age group uh, are really difficult for parents. But we, we do know there was this gap for parents of uh, slightly older children and we don't want them to feel like there's nothing they can do to help their child. And that is what is so exciting about your book and which just, you know, hits it right on the nail. Sorry, the nail on the head for me, because I'm absolutely passionate about empowering parents to solve these issues at home. And that's what this book does. One of the lovely sentences that resonated with me um, initially opening the book is that you say parents hold the key to helping their child overcome their sleep problem. And it's very exciting to read that. And I think this book is like a handbook that you would, if you had a child with a sleep issue, you would dip into, you'd underline things, you'd highlight things, you'd discuss things with your partner um, and you can really use it in that way. Yeah, we certainly hope so. We That's what it's designed to do. Absolutely. So back to the issue, you know, you're saying, you know, in the book that half of all children will experience sleep problems at some point. And it's very important, I think, to differentiate between normal sleep issues 
and what a sleep problem is. So we're going to come on to that. But I just wanted to say to you, is this a new thing? Is family life just busier? Why are sleep problems perhaps so pervasive at the current time? I think it's a tricky question to answer from in a research framework or an empirical framework. But I I think we know family life these days is incredibly busy. It's um, if it's a two parent household, it's very common that both parents will be working. Um, If it's a single parent household, um, then there's often a lot of pressure on that single on that one parent to be uh, available to their uh, child um, all the time. And uh, between that and how busy school is as well with after school activities and sport and um, academic pressures and friendship difficulties, uh, you can see how um, sleep problems or worry, having worries that go round and round in your mind that make it hard to fall asleep uh, could exist at such a high rate. Whether that's worse than it was in previous generations is really difficult to say. I think we're these days as a society, we're much more open talking about children's mental health and family well-being, which is brilliant and is absolutely to be encouraged. And sometimes that can make it seem like problems are much worse now than they used to be. Um, but I don't, as, as I said, I don't think it's a bad thing that we just talk about these things and um, look at ways that we can address them as within families and within broader society. I think arguably, I always say to parents, sleep is the most important issue in family life to get right, because I think it impacts, as I'm sure you'd agree, on everything. Um, all, all parents can recognise when their child is sleep deprived, you know, if their behave often behaviour, your poor behaviour correlates with poor sleep, as does poor um, achievement in school. Is that correct? Yeah, so sleep is hugely important. And I think, you know, on an individual level, we can all relate to that because everyone has had moments in their life where sleep has been harder for them. And we can all kind of recognise that that makes our work a bit harder, makes waking up in the morning a bit harder, makes you slightly less patient, a bit more grumpy with your partner or kids or friends or whatever it might be. I think, you know, everyone can relate to that feeling. So, when the sleep problem is going on and on for months or often the families we see, the problems have been going on for years and years and years, it can have become this really central issue for families where they know that night times are going to be really difficult, parents become sleep deprived, children are sleep deprived, their siblings can become sleep deprived and it can create a um, generally pretty a difficult and unhappy uh, family home in those hours before sleep. Also, as you and I know, um, couples can be really upset with each other about these issues. Often they'll not agree on the right approach, which is why your book is so great, because it provides you know a structured approach to these issues. But, you know, when a child is in your bed every night, it's not that great for, uh, you know, couples either, is it? No, absolutely. So it. Sleep deprivation in itself it can definitely put a strain on your relationship. As I was saying uh, just before, we I think we can all recognise that sleep deprivation can make us perhaps slightly less patient and um, more cranky. And so it can certainly impact on um, your relationship. And, of course, just having your child in your bed all the time, that might be fine for a certain period of time, but uh, it it's not ideal, is it, for um, over a longer term to have your child always in uh, the bed with you. Um, so I think, it, as you said, it's super important that we can get parents on the same page about how to approach this because if you are in a, a two-parent household, we want both parents to be supporting each other in helping the child to overcome their sleep difficulties. So back to spotting the actual issue. When is this, you know, how do the parents listening to this know their child has a sleep issue? And I think one of the points you make in the book is that actually parents are usually the best judges of whether or not your child has a has a sleep problem. Um, so you've mentioned that it might be years of the same issue, but I think there are tangible signs of a sleep problem that you mentioned. So tell us what they might be. Yeah, so um, as you said, Kathy, that's absolutely in our experience uh, working with these families is that parents know if their child has a sleep problem. Um, they are often the very best judge of uh, whether the difficulty has become at a level where it's starting to really impact on their family well-being. Um, so when trying to kind of decide on uh, whether it's a problem that you need help with, 
Um, I think the best thing to do is uh, to have a think about how much it's impacting on your kind of day-to-day functioning as a family. So um, that might be that the sleep problem is happening most nights of the week, particularly we see it on school nights. So maybe it's happening three, four, five uh, nights a week or more. Um, and that night times are becoming a very stressful time for families. And then, of course, as we talk about in the book, the best way to judge if your child is not sleeping well is to look at how they're functioning during the day. Um, so there's those two sides to it. Are, is family, are family evenings um, very stressful? Are they full of arguments? Um, are parents having a lot of trouble getting their children to sleep in their bed? Um, And then on the flip side of that, the next day, is the child difficult to wake? Are they struggling at school? Um, Are they not wanting to see their friends as much? Or are they getting home from school and falling asleep at the end of the the school day or in the car ride home? So we want to look at those kind of both angles of it. When I actually read those sort of symptoms of sleep problems, often those issues are exactly the same as when they were infants. You know, if they were falling asleep in the car on the way home, it was problematic. You think, oh, no, they're never going to fall asleep later in the evening. And that lovely term that was new to me in the book of sleep pressure is so interesting. Making sure parents were intuitively when they were infants, keeping them awake so that they would be more tired later. And I think that's a, a very interesting and proactive approach that you highlight in the book. Yeah. And when we're talking to um, kids and um, families, Uh, about sleep pressure, we often use uh, the analogy of a car and the child light is being like a car and during the day they use up all their petrol and then going to bed at night and sleeping is like going to visit the petrol station and filling your car back up again so you're ready for the next day. Um, And when we talk to kids about that, we say that it's really important during the day that you use up all the petrol in the car Um, And if any time they're having a nap, they're filling a little bit more petrol back up. So we want to um, make sure we're really working with children's sleep pressure because it's a very strong biological um, push to support children to sleep or support any of us to sleep. Um, And that means really avoiding naps and things that, as you said, when they were younger, um, parents are often very proactive about, um, but still remain important across the lifespan, really. So there are signs, you know, during the day, how they're functioning, signs if your family life is highly stressed in the evening, that can be problematic. However, what about nighttime behaviours, which parents often, I'm sure, ring you and I about? Things like getting out of bed, coming into the parents' bed five times before nine o'clock if they've been put to bed at eight, getting up in the middle of the night, wetting the bed, sleepwalking. Um, So what are the most common nighttime behaviours that are problematic? Yeah, so I think when when I say night times being very stressful, that doesn't always mean there's lots of yelling and arguing. It might just be this kind of sense that parents often tell us where they're like, oh, my gosh, they're out of bed again. I've got to take them back to bed again. And they, you know, the, the precious time parents have to themselves at the end of the evening becomes full of walking back and forth between their bed and the child's bed. Um, until perhaps they just let the child come into their own bed and get them to sleep. So it's not necessarily there's lots of arguments. Um, Perhaps actually what we see very commonly is this just getting up and down and up and down and taking a long time to settle in bed. Um, There are other, you mentioned things like sleepwalking that we kind of classify as a parasomnia and they are slightly different because they are the things that we would usually see once the child has fallen asleep. Right. So let's go back to the most common issues. Many, all parents have recognised that issue of children occasionally saying, well, they, none of them want to go to bed, as you point out in the yeah. book. And I really enjoyed reading about delay tactics because parents, yeah. we have heard everything, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got an itchy toe. That was my yeah, late, they're my mind. They? They're very, very creative. You know, or, or I can see something at the window. I mean, they can be terribly creative or there's a monster under the bed. So those delay tactics are very common in all children aren't they absolutely the um every almost every child at some point will probably go through um some of those delay tactics because they want to stay awake awake's where all the fun things are happening um and that's not necessarily problematic in of 
in itself. But what we're trying to support parents with here is when that's become a cycle that's very difficult to break. So when it's happening night after night, month after month, and the the part of it where the first you might find it quite funny quickly becomes uh, not a very humorous situation for anyone. So in terms of a healthy sleep time, you know, healthy bed time, what it looks like, you know, I have a nine and a 12 year old. So say at eight o'clock on a school night, I'll say, right, boys, up to bed, please. They never want to go. They'll always try and resist it. And I'll say, not interested. Up you go, please. Brush your teeth into bed. Pop, pop, you know, chop, chop. Um, And generally, both of them will go to bed and I won't see them until seven o'clock in the morning. So on the whole, that's the way it's it's meant to be, isn't it? That you have a little bit of resistance, but you, you stay authoritative with your bedtime during the school week. Yeah, so keeping a consistent bedtime and also really crucially a consistent wake-up time as well. So keeping those things as consistent as possible is really important for children's sleep and also really important for adolescent sleep as well. So even branching, I know this book is about five to 12-year-olds, but those um, consistent boundaries around when it's kind of quiet time or time to wind down, when it's time to go to bed and when it's time to wake up are really important. Now, that was very, very interesting in the book, what you said about the conditions for sleep. So I just want to stop there a second and think about that. So, for example, so we've just said it's very, very important to be authoritative, even with an older child, 12, 13. Um, And with this issue of being consistent about morning wake up, one of the things I learned from the book is that, you know, you need to go into both their rooms at a consistent time and say, open up the window, open up the curtains to, especially with a 12, 13 year old, to encourage the body to slip into a different gear with that sort of entry of sunlight into the room. Is that right? Yeah, so the consistent wake-up time is really important and um, not always easy. And anyone that has teenagers, I'm sure, will be able to relate to that. Um, But as much as possible, uh, going back again to just the sleep pressure that we were talking about before and um, uh, being able to kind of manage that during the day and night, uh, what you want to avoid is letting your children have huge catch-up sleeps over the weekend. So it's going to be much better for their kind of longer term sleep if they can stay in as much of a routine as possible. Now that is a giant revelation to many, many parents because they tend to think uh, that at the weekend, the, the 12 year old, should, the 13 year old, the 14 year old should sleep in, you know, as long as possible. What would you suggest in the book that we parents try and be as authoritative as possible and try and engineer a, a sort of a system within family life where they uh, go to bed and wake up are actually as consistent as possible, even at the weekend? Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, Sometimes easier said than done with teenagers, but it is absolutely the case that we want it to be consistent because um, you you could imagine how you could easily get into a cycle where they are having a big sleep in on a Saturday and then not being ready to go to sleep again. They haven't used up all the petrol in their car um, until quite late Saturday night. And so then they might need to sleep in Sunday But then by the time they get to Monday, they have to be up for school um, and it can create a very difficult cycle of having consistently good sleeps. Yeah, I thought that was very, very interesting. And of course, so many young people are up having sport on a Saturday morning and they're not really hanging about in the bed. Um, So um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, all parents listening to this will be saying, please ask Rachel, what are the right bedtimes for children of different ages? Yeah. I learned from your book that actually it's maybe something that parents can choose themselves depending on how their child is actually performing in life and in school in general. So is that correct that it might be wrong to say all nine-year-old children have to go to bed at eight o'clock? Yeah, I I think that it's just not um, realistic and it doesn't match what we know about children's sleep or about anyone's sleep, which is that these how much sleep you need does differ by individuals so absolutely and the NHS um, has guidelines on on average how much sleep children should be getting at different ages so absolutely if we say that uh, a 10 year old needs you know nine and a half to 10 hours sleep on average a night there will be some 10 year olds that can get by very well on eight hours sleep and there will be some 10 year olds that maybe need up to 12 hours sleep so um 
in terms of what time they should be going to bed at night, my sense is that the best way to work that out is to try to get an idea of how much sleep your child needs. Um, and like we were talking about earlier, Kathy, that's really about how are they functioning during the day? Are they getting enough sleep to get through the day and be doing well during the day? Um, and if we know how much sleep they need, you know what time they need to wake up to get to school on time, and you can count back and work out what time they need to be in bed by. Um, and it's also important to know that that's the time that you want them in bed going to sleep, but you might want them to have some quiet time by themselves before that as well. So partly it's going to be a bit of a juggle with how it fits with siblings and parents having their time to themselves in the evening, um, juggling all these times around. But um, it's absolutely true that children's sleep needs will differ. And so there's no blanket rule for what time they need to go to sleep. However, I think it's it's it would be um, unwise to let children dictate that. And I think you and I would agree absolutely. on that, that it is absolutely about experimentation and constantly reviewing how sleep is going within family life, literally looking at it as an issue and saying, you know, my son is struggling to wake up in the morning. Perhaps we need to look at bedtime, you know, just get it right. Looking for an optimal time constantly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I think you make a really good point by uh, highlighting that that does need to be driven by the parent because we we know, I mean, we, we have kids at that age, that just can be hilarious, can't they? And when they'll come into the sleep clinic and the parent will be telling us about how they always um, won't fall asleep unless they're in the parent's bed. And we talk to the child about whether they might want to move back to their own bed. And often the child will say, well, no, because I'm perfectly happy sleeping in my mum's um, bed or mum and dad's bed or whoever um, it might be. So uh, it is it is the case. And often you can, you know, there's ways to talk to kids to motivate them around that. Like, do they have sleepovers coming up or school camps coming up that they want to be able to go to? Um, but absolutely, we want bedtime routines um, to be consistent and to be something that's been decided by the parent. Now, again, on that issue of children coming into rooms, you know, I'm always reasonably shocked when parents say that that happens regularly during the night. I just I, it, because I think that all children, I remember loving being in my parents' bed. It's like the nicest, best place in the whole yeah. world. It smells amazing. You know, they want to be there. It's a comfort. So I think in my personal life, I've adopted the approach that if they're poorly, they might have one night beside mommy or daddy in the bed. But that's absolutely it. And it becomes a treat um, as well. It's something special, maybe, you know, that it, that, that it doesn't become a place of every night comfort. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, you you know, life happens, doesn't it? And um, no one is perfect all the time. And, we, you know, there's always times where maybe you're doing things as a parent that you think, oh, this maybe isn't the best thing to do, but this is the best I can do at the moment. And um, Or if you're, as you said, the, the child is um, feeling very unwell or maybe there's um, been a big event in the family that's unsettled things. But in terms of their sleep, what we really want is to get them back into normal routine as quickly as possible and um, essentially giving the message that they're okay to sleep in their own bed, that they're safe to sleep in their own bed and that they can get a good night's sleep. Now, Rachel, I know that you also specialise in children's trauma and responses to trauma. So it's very important to think at this point to ask you about, because I think this crops up quite a lot, when children have had, say, the bereavement of a grandparent, the bereavement of a pet, experienced a great difficulty. I think the temptation is, and children will always exploit opportunities as well to get, you know, to, to disrupt those sorts of sleep um, rules, sleep hygiene. Um, if a child has experienced something, you know, that is traumatic or they've, you know, I think the tendency is they will try and, you know, be in parents' bed, for example, or, or parents will be much more lenient on them. But I think, is it the case, I certainly understood from your book, that even during times like that, it's important to be consistent and to if you are constantly holding them until they fall asleep, it gives the child that message that there's something to be frightened of and that they're not actually competent to fall asleep themselves. So it doesn't it's it's intuitive for a parent to comfort, but it's it really the counterintuitive approach is much better for children. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a really classic thing that we we know from sleep difficulties, but also from the broader child anxiety literature that 
Um, a very common way that um, uh, anxiety or sleep problems can be maintained is that um, parents, by trying to help their child not to feel upset or anxious, um, might encourage them to avoid situations that make them feel anxious, um, like they can just sleep in my bed because they find their bed very difficult to sleep in, or they get into this over um, reassurance where they're um, kind of overly checking in with their child around, um, it's okay, you're safe, there's no monsters under the bed, there's no burglar outside, you can go to sleep here, and um, which is an absolutely understandable response and comes out of really not wanting your child to be anxious or distressed. Um, but can, as you said, um, inadvertently send this message that there's something the child needs to be anxious about, that they're not in fact safe, and also doesn't give them a chance to face their fears. And that is ultimately um, what we in the book we talk about kind of exposure therapy, and that overlaps a lot with what uh, books will talk about on general child anxiety. And that is what that we want parents to support children to face their fears. And that does sometimes involve them having to become a little bit upset as they learn that it's okay. Um, it is. It is also just briefly, Kathy, important to point out that there are obviously as. I know in my field and you with your background in criminology, there are um, certain traumas um, that can have a really devastating impact on a young person. And we know that post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, often comes with uh, nightmares um, and difficulty sleeping. And uh, this, the book we've written is really designed more for general sleep problems. And I think if your child has been through a very significant uh, trauma and you're very worried about them, I'd in really encourage parents to go and talk to their family doctor about that. That's right. And it may need very intense clinical supervision, exactly. that particular they may need different support with that. That's yeah. right. But the, the, your book is about general issues, general sleep problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, we talked about, you mentioned again, the, the overlap between sleep problems and anxiety is absolutely uh, you know, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's 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 very very clear. And let's just take it back to basics. You know, if you were a parent, if you're a parent listening to this, and you have a child who says, "Oh, mummy, you know, it's it's eight thirty at night. The mum is absolutely exhausted. She hasn't had her dinner yet, or dad hasn't had his dinner, and the, the nine year old suddenly exhibits." lots of worries they're worried about things and they're holding mummy or daddy's hand at the pillowcase and they don't want mummy or daddy to leave the room and they want to talk about all the problems during the day and there is a monster under the bed etc and the child looks genuinely distressed and anxious and this happens regularly if you were that mother what would you what is the right thing to say in those moments i, I think there's there's two parts to that and um so that what you're describing there is incredibly common, and as as you said, the and what we talk about in the book is um, this very the this more common sleep problems that we see in children, which are related to nighttime anxieties. Um, and so in the book we talk about uh, bedtime restriction and sleep restriction, where you um, temporarily move their bedtime. Um, a little bit later to help them build up their sleep pressure, uh, which can help to dampen some of that anxiety. So then that's already kind of helping the parent uh, uh, via helping the uh, child's anxiety be anxiety to be dampened. That's right. And that's, um, if I just um, interrupt a second to say that was such a brilliant tip. Now, that's something I've never known about before that I said to my husband last night, isn't this fascinating that that to stop the child worrying, you make sure they don't they go they have to go to bed when they're really, really tired. Yeah, so we want, um, I think, you know, again, I think we can all recognise that night times are a perfect time for worry because you're by yourself, um, the room might be dark, you're lying there not being able to fall asleep. It's a perfect time for worries to creep in. Um, and so what we go through step by step in the book, or a large portion of the book actually, is about this uh, bedtime restriction or even sleep restriction in some cases. And again, it's important to note that that is it's temporary um, but it's about teaching the child that they're safe to fall asleep in their bed um, and helping by dampening their anxiety a bit. So we, you don't, it's this fine balance, isn't it, where you, we don't want the ch children to be falling asleep like on the sofa. We want them to be falling asleep in their own bed, but we don't want them to be going to bed too early because all they're going to be doing is lying there awake, thinking, thinking, thinking. 
Um, so that is one part of it. And then the other part of it is that we absolutely want parents to talk to their children about their mental health and their emotional well-being and what's going on at school. We really want parents to be having those conversations with children so kids feel comfortable going to parents to talk about those things. But at night time when they're in bed about to go to sleep, that may not necessarily be the best time to have those conversations. So it's important to have them and it's important for parents to be very open to starting those conversations, but let's try to move them a bit earlier. So let's try to move them to um, dinner time or when they're home from school um, and not so much when they're lying in bed about to go to sleep. Lovely. And I think this is absolutely probably the most important point of this interview is this is what parents are most interested in, how to have those conversations. You know, they know it's a good idea to talk about mental health and well-being, but the how to is the sticking point. So I'm sure they'd be interested in both of our tips on this point. Let's talk about a child coming home from school in the car. I would say to parents, it's important to say, listen, guys, you know, on a scale of not to 10, where 10's awesome, how was your day? That kind of evaluative approach so that at that point in the car, not only are you keeping them awake with lots of chat, but, but they're able to say, oh, it was an eight or it was a two. Gosh, it was a two. Why was that? Lots of open questions. So what else would you ask in the car, Rachel? Yeah, I think they're absolutely great tips, Kathy. And like you said, keeping questions open so um, they can't just answer with yes, no, maybe. So keeping your questions open so they they have to give a bit more of a detailed um, explanation. Um, another one that we have used quite a lot with families um, is what was the best thing that happened in your day? What was the worst thing that happened in your day? Um, which is similar to what you're talking about with the rating scale, where we want Um, We don't want to always be focusing on all the bad things that are happening. There's often good things that happen during the day as well, but gives uh, parents a kind of non-threatening in to talking to kids about what's happened during the day that they might be struggling with. And when parents know that, um, in the book, we then go through an example of how they might help their child to problem solve around some of those difficulties. But they, they, you know, driving in cars are a great opportunity to have that because, as you said, it keeps kids awake, but they also can't get out the car. Um, so it, it's a kind of focal point after school or after work, whenever it might be, to have that chat. Um, that won't work for every family, but it's just being um, mindful that you're making opportunities available for kids to talk about these things. And to, to, talk, to talk about it in a different way, not necessarily face to face, but in a casual, comfortable yeah, way. Exactly. But, and they might be nibbling some snacks whilst chatting, etc. in the car. At dinner time as well, I always suggest to parents to say, you know, round the table, which is why this family talk time is so critical. Um, to say, you know, what was great about today, but to, for parents to contribute as well. And what was tricky about my day? What was tricky about learning? Um, so that everything is out in the open uh, before bedtime. Uh, would- yeah, I think that's a, it's really good advice because it also just sends the message to kids that it's okay to talk about those things, which is what we really want to get across. It's, you know, everyone has worries um, and it's good. You don't have to keep them to yourself. It's okay to talk about them. If a child expresses something, you know, that is a genuine, something that they're very upset about in a, in a very genuine way at dinner time, I think it's important for us to reiterate that the way in which a parent responds is critical, isn't it? You know, if some if they say, mommy, my day was a two because someone didn't speak, because nobody likes me, nobody wants to play with me. Again, it is very intuitive for a parent to say, oh, darling, everybody loves you. Of course you've got friends and that reassurance, it doesn't work, does it? It's the coaching approach. It's the exploratory open questions that you'll actually be able to have more of an impact. Yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right with that. And, it, you know, as, as I was saying a bit earlier in the conversation, I think, you know, parents, they genuinely they're really just trying their best. And they we, no one says the right thing all the time, um, but you're you're absolutely right that um, that kind of over reassurance is not necessarily helpful, but it also can send a difficult message to your child because if they're genuinely having a friendship problem at school, um, it might be more useful to 
accept that that's happening and have a conversation with them about that and think about how together you could problem solve what's going on. And one of the lovely, lovely things about your book is it literally gives parents, you know, something you can a a template for those sorts of difficult conversations. So you can actually photocopy a page out of your book and use it with your child. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, that's what it's designed to do. And that's what we really hope parents get out of it. But Um, They can pick up the tips that it goes through step by step, because particularly in terms I was talking earlier about the bedtime or sleep restriction, what that specifically looks like is going to differ depending on what your child needs. So um, we certainly, Michael and I really hope the book has been broken down in a way um, where it takes you through step by step. There's worksheets that you can photocopy. There's scripts, as you said. Um, that you can photocopy to have some of those chats and do some of these activities um, with your kids. Certainly, um, in terms of talking about worries, there's just as one example, um, we provide a template in there for talking to your child about how worries feel in their body. So we often say to kids, does your tummy go round and round like a washing machine? Or does it feel like there's butterflies flying around? Are your hands shaky? Are they sweaty? So also helping kids recognise that their feelings, um, how their feelings actually present in their body can be really useful as well. And we've we've got um, activities for that in there and different worksheets. So yeah, we certainly hope it's broken down and used in the way that you say. Yeah, you've got a beautiful little diagram, a drawing for children to actually fill in. And, yeah, and that's yeah. wonderful. And again, it, it, it heightens their awareness of how anxiety may be affecting them. Yes. Um, so just a few questions. I've got questions from parents, if that's okay, to to slot in, Rachel. Couldn't deny them the opportunity. So one mother has written to say that her nine-year-old son has trouble falling asleep. It began with friendship problems at school, with another child calling him nasty, you know, making nasty remarks and taunting him. The parent has involved teachers in helping him deal with this. But in the meantime, he can come home feeling worn out, sad and worried. He can't fall asleep because he keeps thinking about what the other child has said to him. So let's just apply what we know from the book into this particular scenario. Um, I, th- I, I suspect the parent will be, you know, reassuring and perhaps, you know, um, feel very, very upset naturally that this child is experiencing that. But what is your advice to her? So, for, I mean, it's great that the um, parents been spoken to the school already and, um, the, you know, this is a really hard situation to be in for kids but also, you know, really devastating for parents to have to watch their kids going through this. And this is um, a friendship problems like that or bullying or being picked on at school are often a catalyst for the development of sleep difficulties. Um, we know that friendship difficulties are one of the main um, kind of thoughts or worry thoughts that keep kids and teenagers awake at night. Um, So in terms of what advice we would give if they came into the sleep clinic, we would first start by looking at the bedtime restriction or sleep restriction, as I spoke about earlier, that we go through step by step in the book. And that is just about let's give the the child the best chance to fall asleep on their own. So let's let them use up some of that um, petrol to stay awake a little bit longer temporarily so they can practice falling asleep on their own. Um, And the other important side of that, which we haven't necessarily touched on very much, but is hugely important, is their sleep hygiene. So what's happening in the hour or two before bed? Um, Can we create a relaxing environment for them? So these friendship problems, they're real and they're really difficult, um, but can we give them a chance to wind down from them and, and step away from them for an hour or two before bed to do some fun activities that are relaxing for them? Um, to keep the lights dim, um, ov- obviously to be avoiding caffeine goes without saying, um, but to help the help give your child the best chance to fall asleep. So I think so, for that particular mother as well, it would be increasing the time for those exploratory open conversations prior, way prior to bedtime. Yes. Um, lots of general focus in the family on resilience and positivity and positive thought and, and, and helping their children reframe those friendship issues and perhaps even doing some role play. But it's much more proactive away from bedtime. And as you suggest, minimising the worry time at the pillowcase. Yes, exactly. And um, we, I mean, I, 
I think we, of course, want children to uh, develop their resilience. And that doesn't take away from the fact that these friendship difficulties can be really difficult for some young people. And actually, in this, this, the book that Michael and I have written, this is part of a series of books. And I believe there is a book in that series specifically about friendship problems. That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. So that um, that this particular parent might also want to have a look at that book and see the overlap. So, but in terms of the sleep specifically, definitely let's move those conversations to earlier. So let's not be starting those conversations as we're getting into bed, make time for them earlier. We've got, as I mentioned earlier, the problem solving um, activity. So looking at help of coaching children around how they can respond to these different kinds of situations. Um, and then the, the next step we would do um, if they came into the sleep clinic would be to focus on supporting them to fall asleep uh, quicker and have a better quality of sleep. And in this case, without, I mean, it, it's difficult to say exactly without knowing the um, broader history, but it would often look like bedtime or sleep restriction in the first instance. Rachel, when they actually respond to your approach and they're doing well and they actually are able to fall asleep and maybe cope better with their friendship issues, that's the time, isn't it, for parents to use effective praise and try and sustain the changes that they've seen. How can they do that in a practical sense? Yeah, definitely. So um, the when parents start these sleep treatments, sometimes it just happens straight away and we honestly we've had families come in where the child hasn't slept for or gone to sleep on their own for 10 years <laughs> yeah. after a week um they're wow. sleeping in their own bed really well so they, Amazing. They, they can be hugely effective techniques but it is also the case that sometimes the first few nights can be really tricky mm-hmm. um, especially if your child isn't motivated to sleep in their own bed which we talked before that um that it's not always the case so Some kids are really motivated because they want to be able to go and sleep at their friend's house. They want to be able to go on school camp. They want to be in their own bed where maybe they've got a special blanket or their toys, whatever it might be. Um, uh, But even if your child is not necessarily particularly motivated at first, these techniques can still be really useful. Um, And it is we talk in the book a lot about being consistent and being persistent with these strategies and being prepared to use them because sometimes the first few nights, the first two or three nights particularly, can be difficult with children getting up and down more. Um, So persevering with that and then, as you said, the next day um, giving them lots of praise for how um, well they're doing, for trying, Um, and we go through different types of praise and different um, types of rewards that you might use with kids. It's not it's not about them, you know, getting lots of money and getting a Ferrari or what. It, it's more about uh, parents really acknowledging when that kids are trying really hard to overcome their fears. And you know what I love as well about your book? The fact that you say at the beginning, are you ready to use yeah. this book? It's hard work. It might yes. take a night to solve it. It might take three weeks, but mm-hmm. you have to be committed. And it's a whole yes. family effort. And I think that's you, you take time to say to the book, to the parents reading the book, are you really ready? Are you ready to use the, 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 the evidence-based material in this book? And I think that's very, very important. I like the fact you use case studies. Parents can relate to those. I think they're very interesting. They've got children's ages, which is very useful. Um, And I also like the fact that, you know, it's you can dip into that book, can't you? You can go to specific issues. You can realise, yep, that echoes with us and we're going to try that particular approach. For a parent who buys the book, who uses the book and who may not need a lot of help, but they may need reassurance they're using the book effectively. How do you deal with the fact that a parent may actually want to contact you and just ask a question? How can could they do that, or was that something that's on you know not practical? We don't tend to do that from no. a practical point of view, to be perfectly honest. Because I mean, you could imagine exactly, exactly. <laughs> I might get fired from my job if I, exactly if, um, if that happens. So we don't. Um, the book is not designed for that. The book is really designed for parents to pick up, to read, to feel confident. We, as we, um, as you mentioned before, Kathy, we have a section there about are you ready to do this? Because it can, it, it can be challenging. And sleep interventions at any age are really about short term pain long-term gain. Um, But you have to be prepared that 
um, as I said, your child might for the first few nights be very upset about um, being taken back to bed because they're used to not having to do that and you're they're facing their worries, which can be challenging. Um, so we want parents to feel prepared for that and feel like they can persist so they can succeed. We want parents and kids to feel success from using these techniques. Um, if they are still really struggling uh, after they've had a go with these techniques or gone through the book and really given it a shot, um, they could still they should still absolutely feel like they can go and talk to their GP or their family doctor um, or look out for um, mental health professionals that might be able to help them with that. Um, but that would be much more appropriate in a yeah. staff kind yeah. of mental health service where they could have, you know, weekly sessions or whatever it might be. But the bottom line is everything they need to know is in that book. And I think without being able to ring up Rachel every day, that, that what the point made in the book is get yourself some support. You know, make sure your best friend knows that you're trying this sleep approach and, and help, you know, just as when we had young children, we had great friends who could give us, make us a cup of tea when we were feeling low about it or, or say, listen, how are you getting on with your sleep, um, you know, approaches using that book? And so I think the support is there. It doesn't necessarily, you know, parents need to build up their confidence that they can do it with the help of that book. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you can have a support network around you, that's really great. We we talked earlier and we definitely want partners to be on the same page about it. We want them to be using a consistent approach. Otherwise, um, in some ways that can make it more anxiety provoking for the child. So we want the parents to be on the same page, supporting each other with it. We even often in the sleep clinic, um, absolutely not always, but it was often the case that the child's uh, sleep would be a bit worse when the mum tried to put them to bed, which was a source mm-hmm. of great frustration to a lot of mums that we worked with, that maybe if they go to grandma's house, they seem to sleep very well, but um, not at home. Um, and so then um, we would get the dad to really take the lead of the sleep intervention and support the child in that way. So having, um, if you are in a two-parent household, having both parents on board is incredibly important. We want, as I said, it to be, we want parents to be persistent and consistent with the approach to this. So children know what to expect and they know what is happening and parents are taking the lead in making that happen. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that is uh, really important. I have to ask if children are in homes where mum and dad are separated or divorced and they have to, you know, go to a different home on a Friday night or a Thursday night, or whatever. Again, isn't the advice consistency that mum and dad, even if they're separated or divorced, they have a consistent approach to bedtime? Absolutely. Um, and I think that we want, um, you know, in an ideal world when parents have separated, we want their parenting approach and approaches to be as consistent as possible. Um, but certainly in terms of sleep and bedtime routines, ideally we really want the same routines to be very consistent across both households. And that's the same for um, if a child stays at a grandparent's house for a few nights or um, wherever, wherever they might be spending their regular evenings. We want it to be consistent between different households so we can um, maintain any improvements and maintain the momentum of the child's sleep. Lovely. And a couple of last questions from parents. You can answer very briefly if you like. Is it okay to have a child, um, you know, with a light in the child's bedroom or, you know, often children request a little light, um, those sorts of comforts. That's absolutely acceptable, isn't it? Absolutely. I I think if it's um, not a problem for the family, then it's not then it's not a problem. It's very common that children will have night lights or a hallway light on. And um, if that's how they're falling asleep, that's fine. Um, It's just preparing them for, I guess, as they become more independent, that if they go to a friend's house, how are they are they going to be okay if they don't have those same lights in place, but that it's very normal to have night lights. And a last question for parents who are parenting children who may be on the autistic spectrum or who have may ADHD, again, a very common question for me from parents is, do I use the same approach? Should I always be authoritative? Um, is, there, is there is anything specific, any specific resource or um, guidelines you would give parents in those particular scenarios? Yeah, so we've certainly done these interventions with uh, young people with ASD and ADHD. Um, Because these interventions are very behavioural based, they're very much around um, sleep hygiene or bedtime hygiene, so having the kind of right environment to fall asleep and then around 
um, working with your child's sleep pressure to help build up some of that sleepiness at night time. Um, they are very behavioural and I hope very practical. Um, so they can be absolutely trialled um, in kids with ASD, kids with ADHD. The, the research, I must say, this research side of it is not as well developed yet for the best ways to support sleep um, in those groups of young people. But clinically, we have used um, these strategies with uh, young people with all kinds of different things going on. Um, and if parents are very worried or think uh, or are feeling like maybe a book is not enough to help them feel confident with it, they, as I said earlier, should definitely go and talk to their family doctor. Rachel, something else I've picked up from the book very, very finally is is that having a sleep diary, really looking closely at how your child is sleeping is fundamental, really, as, as a basis for using this book. It's like a sort of a, you know, if you were if you were trying to solve a sort of an eating issue, you would keep a food diary. And I think the sleep diary, parents keeping track of how their child is doing, gives them so much valuable information, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not um it's not that we expect parents to be using sleep diaries for the rest of their child's no. development. But when um if if you if your child is having a lot of sleep difficulties and um you want to get support with it, the first step is really that's really useful for parents and for children as well, is actually putting down on paper what the sleep problem is. And the sleep diary we give um in the book uh gives them a template for doing that. Uh, we it's not something that we want them to be sitting, you know, doing as they sit in bed. Obviously, that wouldn't be helpful, but it gives an estimate um, from the parent's perspective and also from the child's perspective of um, how they're sleeping, what time they're falling asleep, whether they're waking up during the night. Um, and in terms of the book as well and the strategies, that information is really crucial for designing the sleep intervention that best suits your child's needs. Lovely. Well, listen, Rachel, we've taken up a lot of your time and it's been a fantastic, informative interview. Um, Just to highlight, have you got any other resources or things that you'd like to signpost to parents? Um, I think the most useful thing to signpost to them um, is what what we spoke about earlier, that the helping your child with is a series of books. So um, we, I said there was one on friendship difficulties. There's a great one on general child anxiety. And there's also one that's just been released on trauma and loss. So um, sleep can affect all of those different areas. Um, and we hope this book is really helpful for parents that are struggling with their children's sleep. But if there are other areas you're struggling with, this series might be a good starting point to look at that. Lovely. We'll certainly sign post parents to that. Dr. Rachel Hiller, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me, Cathy. If you'd like to buy Rachel's book, it's easily accessible in all good bookshops and it's called Helping Your Child with Sleep Problems, a self-help guide for parents. She is a co-author alongside Michael Gradisar and her book is part of the Overcoming publication. It's a series of books that are actually designed to empower parents to solve some of these issues that children are experiencing uh, in the home. So it's a fantastic series and I would highly recommend them for all parents. If you visit overcoming.co.uk, you'll find a list of other publications in that particular series. So it's called Helping Your Child with Sleep Problems, a self-help guide for parents by Rachel Hiller and Michael Gradisar. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.